welcome to History Team, show number 14. It's been a while since I last talked to you, and I thought I should tell you a few other things I've been doing since the last show. One of them, I've been building a trebuchet, myself and my partner, we built a trebuchet together, so now we can attack very small castles. It is only a small trebuchet. But that hasn't taken much time. The one really big thing, the real time sink, is... I've been researching my family tree, and it's been absolutely fascinating. No, really it has. <laughs> I know many of you don't believe me, but it has. I've always been a little bit put off getting involved with family tree stuff, or talking to people about family tree stuff. Because what I'm really interested, as far as history is concerned, is macro history. I'm interested in the great sweep of events, the big decisions, the government decisions, the economic decisions, nations against nations, and how they meld together and change their attitudes and their culture, and the way they sort of grow up together. But of course, this all filters down to the individual. So you can look at the individual in your family tree and there will be a link to all these great events. And I found exactly that with some of my ancestors already. I've only been at this quite a short while, but I've got an ancestor who was born in 1850 in a place called Driffield in East Yorkshire. Now, Driffield is quite a rural place. But at that time, it was delivering vast amounts of grain to a place called Leeds, which is where my family's been for the last hundred years or so. Well, this ancestor, a chap called John, John Robert, must have decided that the place to be, the place where the money and the jobs is, is Leeds. So I looked at how he would have got to Leeds. There's a canal system. There's a canal system comes down from Driffield and one across from Hull and they both go across into the centre of the country and this is where you find Leeds, the great industrial city at that time. And so in about 1870, it looks like he probably came to Leeds along the canals, in the barges, along with all the grain and got himself a job in Leeds. Since then, there's been a bunch of mowats who have been iron moulders and brass moulders, all growing up in a section of Leeds called Hunslet, which is at the very heart of the industrial area. So there we are, one of my ancestors, as part of that industrial revolution, as part of the movement away from the rural areas into the cities. But there's more. There's his father, and his father came all the way from the north-east of Scotland. And I look at this, and this is quite baffling at first. You look at him moving such a distance in a time where transport was quite difficult, and you have to wonder why. Well, I was looking through Scottish history, and there could be a couple of reasons. One, the Highland clearances are going on at this time, especially in that area. We have the Sutherland clan, who were particularly notorious for improving the land, which basically meant putting sheep on it and moving the people off it, the crofters and such like. But also, and more specifically for this time, we have in 1846 a great famine in Scotland. And this looks like it's about the time when my ancestor will have moved from the northeast of Scotland to the east of England. If he's travelled down there, I'm suspecting that what he will have done is he will have come down in one of the ships down the east of the country, perhaps coming from Aberdeen right down to Hull and then inland from Hull. I'm going to have to research it a little more, but I love this. I love the way it ties in with the macro history. And so, as you can tell, 
I'm all enthusiastic about this family history stuff, this genealogy stuff. And I was going to enthuse about it all over the place. But then I thought, there's one person that can do it so much better than I. So I've invited Lisa of the Genealogy Gems podcast along to talk to you a little about genealogy. Hi, this is Lisa Louise Cook, host of the Genealogy Gems podcast and the Family History Genealogy Made Easy podcast. Since I'm a genealogist, you can imagine how thrilled I am to hear that my friend Jim Mallett has finally embraced his family history. I've been listening to Jim's History Zine podcast pretty much from the beginning because, you see, my family history is world history, and so is yours. The world has gotten pretty small these days with the Internet, and with all the advances in online genealogy research, you really get a sense of just how interconnected we all are. So the only way that we can really understand our own family history is if we can see it within the context of the world that surrounded our ancestors at that time. As we look at world history and we hear about the admirals and the generals, we have to remember that those admirals and generals were commanding armies of our ancestors. When we in America talk about the building of the Intercontinental Railroad and the populating of the Wild West, we're really talking about everyday people. Our great-grandfathers and grandmothers who dug the soil, settled the land, and started the businesses. I'd love to share an example with you from my own family history. Hello, Central. Hello, Central. Can't you see? Kindly hurry, kindly hurry, just for me. Please get me San Francisco. Someone's waiting all alone. For years, I had a photograph of my great-grandfather standing outside his home, holding up his infant son, my grandfather, being a proud papa. Well, the year was 1906, and in the background stands the city of San Francisco, where they lived. It's a really sweet photograph. years ago, I really started devoting time into learning more about world history and creating timelines that incorporated both that world history and my family history. And lo and behold, right there on the timeline, just about a month before my grandfather's birth, was a catastrophic event in the city of San Francisco. On April 19th, 1906, the city was rocked by the Great Earthquake. I had heard of the great San Francisco earthquake before, but I never really thought about it that much. I mean, my great-grandfather, you know, wasn't the fire chief or the mayor of the city or anything like that. But as I continued to research and analyze the dates, a really compelling picture of my family within that world event started to emerge. I mean, just imagine, my great-grandmother was eight months pregnant when the earthquake hit think of the terror. And as I learned of the catastrophic devastations, the fires, the homelessness, the utter destruction, I realized that she likely had no hospital to go to to even have her baby a month later. I mean, the hospitals that were actually left standing were filled to the rafters with earthquake victims. 
And also, an explanation finally emerged as to why I had never been able to locate a birth certificate from my grandfather to even verify where he was born. No certificate exists because the City Hall of San Francisco burned to the ground. And remember the photograph that started this whole investigation? Well, through closer inspection with a magnifying glass, I noticed, for the first time, glimpses of not just the city of San Francisco in the background, but of the earthquake damage that surrounded their home. So I am not surprised that Jim has made this connection with family history, considering his keen comprehension of world history that he shares with all of us on this terrific podcast. I hope as he shares his long-time experience in grand-scale history with you and his newfound passion for his own family's place in that history, that it will ignite a fire in you to consider the connections as well. You know, you have a fascinating family history that fits right in there with that world history, and it's just waiting to be discovered. And of course, I'd be honored to help you with that task. And no, you don't have to wait until you're retired and have more free time. The Internet has literally compressed research that used to take a month into like an hour. No kidding. Anyone can make significant progress on their family tree in a short amount of time. And I'll even walk you through it. Just invest a half an hour a week listening to my Family History Genealogy Made Easy podcast. And I will start you at the beginning, and I'll show you how to dig up those roots, and you could end up with a family tree the size of the redwoods out here in California. Then once you get your footing, you'll want to start listening to the Genealogy Gems podcast, where I share my favorite and newest research techniques, as well as interview the top family history experts around. So come on by my website, genealogygems.tv, and say hi and take a listen. Oh, and there's one more way that the San Francisco earthquake affected my ancestors. Up until the quake, great-grandfather had been a cable car conductor. And after the quake, why, he became a life insurance salesman, of course. I want to give a quick shout out for a special birthday this year. In fact, two very special birthdays. One is for a former student at Cambridge University. That's Charles Darwin, who studied at Christ College. He was born 200 years ago. There are a multitude of events celebrating the man and his works. Visit www.britishscienceassociation.org if you want to find out more. Another birthday happening in my hometown of Cambridge is the 800th birthday of the founding of Cambridge University. It seems there was a little trouble in Oxford back in 1209. Two Oxford scholars were convicted of the manslaughter of a woman and the town authorities, with the assent of the king, convicted and hanged the two scholars. Now those few words hide a multitude of tensions. The University of Oxford, I should imagine, would have expected the scholars to be tried by a church court. And so would object most strongly to the town authorities taking this action. In fact, the university went into voluntary suspension, a sort of strike in protest. Now, 
I know you might think that a university going on strike is no big deal, but it would involve a lot of people moving out of the town while studies were suspended. And the tradespeople would have been very badly hit indeed. However, one spin-off of this action was that a group of scholars came over to Cambridge and joined some of the schools operating in this area. Somehow, this then made them a university, and with special decrees from Pope Gregory IX, and then a papal bull from Pope Nicholas IV, Cambridge University became established, and now, 800 years later, it's doing quite well for itself. As to the celebrations for the university's birthday, well, I've been to one, which was very good indeed. There was a special slideshow, and it depicted lots of the events that have taken place during the university's history. And it was projected onto the side of the Senate building. That's the building where you'll collect your degree at the end of your studies. And to accompany this slideshow, the bells of Great St. Mary next to us sung out a specially written bell-ringing tune thing. The slideshow was absolutely stunning and it was a fine atmosphere as vast numbers of us crammed onto King's Parade to watch the show. I've been to the website since then though to see what else Cambridge University is doing to celebrate its birthday and the answer is sadly not very much. Shame Cambridge University, surely you can do better. I was chatting to Lisa recently from the Genealogy Gems podcast and we happened to be discussing my linguistic history trivia bit. Have you seen this, she says, showing me a link to the description of the term fork over. I was a little baffled at first, as the phrase wasn't familiar to me. But the link mentioned 1940s gangster films, and that made it all clear. I can hear the words quite clearly in my head, spat out of the side of the mouth gangster kind of way, while he exhorts someone to fork over the dough, as he waves a pistol in the direction of the person who presumably has this dough cash to fork over. The description on the website describes the phrase as coming from the time when your peasant chappy will be required to pay rent to the landlord, ideally in silver, but if he didn't have the silver stuff, then it would be a case of getting out the pitchfork and handing over quantities of his produce to his landlord. This seems to make sense, as you're using a pitchfork and handing over something which is due, and this is not a happy transaction. It fits in perfectly with that gangster scenario I mentioned earlier. Then I remembered a phrase from the UK side of the Atlantic, to fork out. This similarly means finding the money to pay for something that you sort of resent having to pay. However, I wasn't entirely sure about this peasant and his cat. The scenario didn't quite ring true for me. I thought I'd better look around and see if I could find some other sources to back it up. I searched and searched, but found not a one. This meant that I really had to discount it. There was, however, another explanation for the term, which was a lot more recent, but just as interesting. This phrase seems to have been derived from a pickpocket's term for hand, and there's a whole bunch of citations from the mid-19th century. If one pickpocket were to say to another, let's fork him, then that would be an exhortation to pick some poor innocent's pockets. 
It is said to come from the demeanour of the hand as it slides into the victim's pocket. You slide your hands in with the fingers open, and hand held flat so as to cause least ructions in the pocket, and then the fingers are closed up together, then you withdraw the hand, with any valuables held between the fingers. Another description has the pickpocket just sliding two fingers into the pocket and clamping onto the contents in a similar way. So hands or fingers will be known as forks when used for this purpose. With so many citations for this from so many sources, I had to conclude that this was the most likely explanation for the term fork over or fork out. Whilst researching this, I came across another term which is related to this one, which is put up your dukes, which means put up your fists ready for a fight. This too is referring to hands as forks, as dukes here is rhyming slang, put up your dukes, dukes here is short for dukes of York, and that is to rhyme with fork. Put up your dukes, put up your forks, fork up, fork out, fork over. It's a well-used phrase that led me a merry dance through its history but I very much enjoyed the journey. Thank you very much to Lisa from the Genealogy Gems podcast for suggesting it. And now, it's podcast review time. In the 2nd century BC, there was the third and final of the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, and this resulted in the complete destruction of the great city of Carthage. The latest in the BBC Radio 4 series, In Our Time, sought with the help of three eminent classical historians, Mary Beard, Joe Quinn and Eleanor Gorman from the Universities of Cambridge, Oxford and Bristol respectively, to get to grips with the whys and wherefore of the need for this massively destructive act. In Our Time is a wonderful series which fearlessly confronts some very difficult topics. It's a series that really needs to be judged on its own terms rather than compared with other history shows. My first impulse, in this case, was to compare the show with Dan Carlin's wonderful podcast, which covered the history of the Three Punic Wars and focused on the chronology of events which led up to the destruction of Carthage. But upon reflection, I see it's a very different creature indeed. Here we have three historians focusing very much on this one act, and looking at the political and cultural pressures which made this a necessary act. As a result, the listener does need quite a considerable amount of prior knowledge to gain the maximum benefit from this show. The historians can and do disagree with each other, and are all too likely to meander down avenues which are concerned with their own research, but Melvin Bragg, the presenter, does a fine job of steering them back to the subject of debate. This can be frustrating if you're keen to hear the experts expand upon their topic, but because this is a radio show, it has strictly defined time limits and doesn't have the latitude a podcast would have. This is a strength in that it keeps everyone focused on the issue, but it also means one is left feeling vaguely unsatisfied as the 45 minutes is barely enough to scratch the surface of, in this case, what could and should be quite an in-depth look at the nature of Roman culture in the 2nd century BC and the pressures of empire. Life, politics and war is a complicated business 
and of course we arrive in the show at no single conclusion. But it does provide some glimpses of why it was deemed necessary to destroy Carthage, and this was wonderfully personified in the vision of Cato the Elder, who would rant incessantly in the Senate about the destiny of Rome and the need to stay strong and remove the effete, corrupting influence of the Carthaginians and the Greeks. It is from Cato we get the phrase Delenda est Carthago. Carthage must be destroyed. This was a fine show, but it did really need to be at least twice as long to cover the issues with sufficient depth. And this is a problem with many of the shows in this series. They aim to tackle quite difficult subjects, but there's just not enough time to really cover them. However, I'm reluctant to criticise too harshly. There are so few shows around like this. And thank goodness for the BBC, which has a public broadcasting remit, and doesn't spend its time dumbing everything down to the most basic level to capture advertisers and to broaden their scope out to try and include absolutely everyone. I mean, there are shows for everyone on the BBC, but they don't try to do it so that every show is for everyone. The other drawback to this series, particularly from your point of view, is for some of you, I don't know whether everyone can get this. The BBC is paid for by the UK taxpayer through our licence fees, so I'm not sure they make it available overseas. And also, they only leave one episode on the feed. So this particular episode that I've been talking about won't be on the feed anymore. Uh, we've already got on to the next episode, which is the Observatory at Jaipur, and there'll be something completely different next week. But what I want to get across here is the quality of the show. Whatever they're talking about, it's well worth listening to. There is informed debate. They bring in people that really know what they're talking about. And it's all beautifully stage-managed by the presenter, Melvin Bragg. I heartily recommend it. And before we leave the subject of podcast reviews, I want to quickly mention the return of a podcast that I used to listen to some considerable time ago. And he's just brought out a new episode now. This is Michael Anthony from the British History Podcast. That's British History 101. Search for it on iTunes. I'm sure you'll find it. The latest episode is perhaps not the usual format, so if you do listen to it, listen to a few of the older ones on the feed and you'll get a feel for the sort of thing he produces. Welcome back to the Podosphere, Michael Anthony. And now, the War of the Spanish Succession. And so, we tiptoe tentatively into the year 1705. We're moving chronologically through the events of a European war known as the War of the Spanish Succession. This is a war which took place from the year 1701 to 1714 and was fought between England, the Netherlands, Austria and their allies on one side and France and Spain and their allies on the other. The Duke of Marlborough leads the Anglo-Dutch armies and generals such as Villar and Villeroy lead the Franco-Spanish forces under the overriding authority of Louis XIV of France. The war began in 1701 when Louis' grandson was bequeathed the throne of Spain 
and Louis urged him to accept, so breaking previously made treaties, where he had assured everyone he would not do this. The Habsburg king in Austria, who had his own claimant to the Spanish territories, immediately went to war with France. There was fierce fighting in northern Italy between the Austrians and the French, and then the following year the Dutch and the English joined the fray, engaging the French forces in the Low Country, the area we now know as Belgium, and bits of the Netherlands. Poor old Flanders, Belgium, has so often been the war zone of Europe. It was here, and yet again, in the First World War. It's at the very heart of the war. The fighting continued in Italy, Spain, the Germanic lands, Savoy, and the Netherlands, with neither side gaining more than a temporary advantage until 1704, when the Duke of Marlborough led the Allied forces to a crushing victory over the Franco-Bavarian forces in Bavaria. This is known as the Battle of Hochstadt, or Blenheim. 1704 also saw a great naval triumph when the Anglo-Dutch forces took Gibraltar and achieved a dominance over the French navy in the Mediterranean. The Duke of Marlborough is therefore hoping for great things in 1705. He plans to attack up the Moselle and hopefully carry his advance all the way into France. To this end, he has captured several fortresses on the Moselle and at the start of the campaign for this year, he assembles his troops for the advance. Unfortunately, it seems his allies have decided that the campaign on the Moselle is not of prime importance this year. The Austrian Emperor, now that the danger from Bavaria has been averted, as it was the previous year by the Battle of Blenheim, is resting on his laurels a little, and he's actually sent some of his forces into Italy rather than sending them to Marlborough in the Low Countries. The Prussians too have sent off their troops into Italy, and troops from Hanover and Baden are late to the assembly point. Marlborough eventually decided to call off his plan and withdrew back into Flanders. The French then took Trier, Huy, and had begun to besiege the citadel of Liège before Marlborough could return and lift that siege. You see, we now have a situation where the French general is dictating the movement of the conflict and Marlborough is running around from crisis point to crisis point trying to keep up. Marlborough, a general who loved to force the pace, must have really hated this. He knew he needed to come up with a plan which could turn this situation around. In 1704 he had set up a situation where there were many options before him and the French had no way of guessing which way he might go. In this year, it was blatantly obvious that he intended to advance up the Moselle, so it was possibly not surprising that he found himself facing Villa so well entrenched across his path. He possibly felt that, with the German reinforcements, he would have enough troops to just steamroller his way forward, but now this option seemed to have been taken away from him, and he had no backup plan. Marlborough now decided that if he was going to grab back the initiative, he must completely abandon his former plan and break through the French lines of fortification known as the Lines of Brabant. This opens out the options once more. The Lines of Brabant were extremely formidable and very well defended. The French general Viroy must have been rubbing his hands in glee when he heard Marlborough was scouting out the defences. You see, 
A general is always looking for an edge, something that will give him an advantage over his opponent. And what could be more advantageous than that opponent wasting his troops, throwing them against heavily prepared defences? However, Marlborough has a plan. It's a secret plan. He hasn't even told most of his allies. The only Dutch general he's confided in is Overkirk, who is a key part of that plan. So, what is this wonderful plan? Well, first, I'll tell you the plan Marlborough told the Dutch deputies. First, he said, I'm going to advance towards the lines near Lieu, and that will draw the Marshal Viroy to this sector to face me. That will take French forces away from the lines at the Meuse, where the lines are weakest, and the Dutch forces will be able to break through there. I shall immediately countermarch to the Meuse and aid in the assault. Now, I suspect you're not entirely convinced. It's quite a simple plan, and it's fairly obvious that Villeroy will be wary of leaving his weakest point exposed, even when he's threatened by the forces of Marlborough. The Dutch deputies too were sceptical, but there seemed no harm in it, and so they approved the plan. And as they thought, Vilroy was not drawn away from the weakest point, judging that Marlborough's move was no more than a feint. Marlborough continued the plan, marching back towards the Dutch as he said he would. Vilroy heard about this and felt he could relax, confident that he had assessed the situation correctly. So there Vilroy sat, protecting his weakest point, which makes absolute sense. However, under the cover of darkness, Marlborough changed direction and turned back and attacked the lines between Elixheim and Lue at their strongest point. Although the lines were well fortified here, they were very lightly garrisoned, and the surprise when the attack came was complete. The soldiers in Marlborough's army had been discussing the subject of an attack on the lines of Brabant for some weeks now, and the general feeling was that an assault on these lines might easily cost 10,000 men. To come upon the lines now and find them almost completely undefended was a most unexpected surprise. Marlborough's troops streamed through, and these lines of defence, which had seemed so impregnable, were swiftly pierced. News soon reached the French that Marlborough had attacked, and a large contingent of French, Spanish, Bavarian and Cologne cavalry were sent to intercept. For some time, there was fierce fighting, and Marlborough himself was unhorsed and very nearly killed at this time. But then, the rest of the army caught up. Marlborough's infantry, led by Lord Orkney and Overkirk's troops, arrived on the battlefield, and the victory was complete. The Anglo-Dutch forces could now dismantle these lines of defence at their leisure. Now, the rest of the year involved a great deal of complicated military manoeuvres in the Low Countries. And finally, it looked as if Marlborough had got into a position where he could bring his forces to bear upon the French army. But just at the point, as it looks like he was going to gain another great victory... The Dutch deputies, primarily General Slangerberg, forbade him to attack, judging that in their opinion, 
the situation was not advantageous enough to warrant an attack. Most frustrating. But I can understand Slangenberg's ire here. He would have felt that he should have been included in Marlborough's plans to take the lines of Brabant, and it's possibly not too surprising that he should be a little obstructive now. The Duke of Marlborough, however, was furious. He wrote to his friend Hainsius at The Hague, I do before God declare to you that I am persuaded that if Slangerbeck had not been in the army at this day, we might have prescribed to France what peace we might have pleased. So, what will Marlborough do? He's been obstructed once more by the Dutch deputies, and there are people all around him, urging him to push the issue. He's proven himself now at Blenheim as being a commander of remarkable talent, and yet he must still ask permission of the Dutch deputies every time he wants to do anything. He spends months getting his armies into position for the killing thrust, and then is told it's too dangerous. Truly now is the time to lay down the law and insist that he have autonomy or resign his position. But he doesn't do this, and advised against it when the British government suggested this course. This is all interpretive, of course. Another historian might come to completely different conclusions. But I think this shows once again the Duke of Marlborough's great talents and incredible statesmanship of prime importance is holding together the alliance. I'm convinced no one else could have done so. All members of this alliance seem to make promises they don't keep, act primarily in their own interest, and are slow to respond with aid for other members of the alliance, while being quick to demand assistance themselves. It's like trying to manage a very large number of people who have the rights of adults, and yet the self-centred nature of small children. One's greatest weapon in such a circumstance is endless tolerance and a big tin of sweets or candy. The tin of sweets being the money provided by the English and Dutch economies. So it's important the Dutch are kept on side as they contribute heavily towards keeping this tin of sweets topped up and therefore keeping the Austrian emperor and his flailing economy afloat. It's also important that the French see no cracks appearing in the alliance. There were strong anti-war factions in England and the Dutch Republic. The French diplomatic service had long held a much-envied reputation as being the finest in Europe, and would be sure to capitalise on any internal opposition to the war. Louis XIV was aware of pretty much everything happening on the continent and was always looking for where he could grease the wheels to ease in the conditions necessary for him to achieve his aims. If any cracks appeared in the strength of the alliance, the diplomats of France would be immediately there attempting to widen that crack and so split the alliance apart and leave France the dominant power on the continent. In fact... Louis did make a peace offer to the Dutch, and there was some interest in his terms. But the English were against the deal. The stumbling block was Spain, 
and England insisted that Philip V, Louis' grandson, must be removed from the Spanish monarchy. There had been some considerable Allied success in Spain. Portugal had now sided with the Anglo-Dutch-Austrian forces. Gibraltar and Barcelona had been captured, and Catalonia now supported Charles III, who was the Allied choice as King of Spain, as opposed to Louis XIV's grandson, Philip V. These successes, plus the treaty with Portugal, which demanded the removal of Philip V from the throne of Spain, had moved Spain very much to the focus of attention of the English Parliament. This will become a continual bone of contention with the Dutch, as they were not as interested in the war in Spain, nor of the removal of Philippe from the throne there. The Dutch were more focused on the reduction of the threat from their French neighbours, and reclaiming their barrier fortress to keep them safe from future aggression. In the original war aims, Spain hardly gets a mention, but these aims are expanded as the various allies are wooed over with a multitude of promises. The war in Spain is going to cause a number of difficulties, but I'm sure we'll get the opportunity to study them in future episodes. We'll leave 1705 for now, and next time take a look at 1706, when things become quite lively once more in the heart of Europe, the Low Countries. Bye for now.